Hi, this is Gary Meese with the Hurricane Edition of the case against. Uh, well, I've often stated that I'm on the banks of Rotten Bayou. I'm actually not that close. I'm sort of up the hill from it, which means I'm 70 feet above sea level. If I was actually on the banks of Rotten Bayou tomorrow, there's a good chance I would be podcasting from underwater. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know if the hurricane's actually going to affect me that much or not. Uh, I will know tomorrow. No big deal, I hope. Um, I'm going to do something a little different today because, um, you know, I'm sort of sort of out of sync with many things. Uh, some some uh, personal family type stuff is unfortunately intruded into into things, and and there's the meteorological meteorological aspects that I have to consider, and all that sort of throws me off kilter. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read something that uh, I wrote back in March 12, 2013, uh, a review of West of Memphis, uh, titled, it appeared in the West Memphis Evening Times, uh, where I was employed at the time, uh, with the headline, West of Memphis, West of Memphis, East of the Truth. Uh, West of Memphis is here. It's in that desolate, desolate expanse of gumbo soil between the rotting Mayflower apartments and the service road on a weedy knoll that used to be the infamous Robin Hood Hills. At this point, that bleak and forbidding site will yield as many new clues as to what actually occurred here May 5, 1993, as any other contemporary source anyone is likely to come across. But they'll keep trying those supporters. Before there were supporters, there was the first Paradise Lost documentary, which seemed to establish that the three Metallica-loving teens were arrested by incompetent police and convicted by conniving prosecutors in the brutal murders of three West Memphis eight-year-olds, all based on the flimsiest of evidence and fueled by satanic panic over the teens' strange preferences for black t-shirts and long hair in a throwback inbred community that had never been exposed to lovers of hard rock and Stephen King novels. By the time the second Paradise Lost movie rolled out, shameless camera hog John Mark Byers, adoptive father of one of the three boys, was being suggested as the likely suspect. Funny, but Byers' whereabouts that night have always been fairly well documented, so the suggestions that he was directly involved in the brutal slayings, I, I, I had a singular suggestion that he was directly involved in the brutal slayings, has been and remains a straw man argument. It's barely possible that he somehow could have slipped off into the woods, brutalized those boys, and thrown them hog-tied into the water, but it's not credible. He was loud, though, and huge and kind of scary and had a trifling but real criminal record and liked to play around with guns and hence was an all-too-easy target. 
the filmmakers didn't let facts get in the way of a good story. The Arkansas author of the book on which the upcoming feature film about the case is based also could not resist pegging buyers as a person of interest, despite much evidence to the contrary. By the third Paradise Lost feature, and now with the fourth documentary in general release, buyers fell off the hook and the favored culprit has become yet another grieving dad in the case. We all have had moments we would not wish to share with the world, and Terry Hobbs, somewhat understandably, given the nature of the wrongs done his family, has had more than his share of those moments dug up for all to see. Mysterious overhead third-hand conversations about family secrets. Allegations of a sometimes nasty position from an ex-spouse and angry ex-in-laws. Did the discovery of a single hair that may or may not be from Hobbs, and with a perfectly reasonable explanation as to why it would be in a shoelace if it is his, make an even weaker case for prosecution than the supposedly feeble ones represented in the Paradise Lost epic. The ironies abundant in the latest round of accusations are absolutely lost on producers Peter Jackson and Damian Eccles and their crew. Other misrepresentations and obfuscations abound. Let's give it this. It's an artful look at West Memphis and environs, and we are not likely to see many such others. West of Memphis, fourth movie about the case, is an advocacy documentary. It's the movie that the aptly named Icky his jailhouse bride, Lori Davis, and their various movie star rock god supporters wanted made. It's quite an effective piece of propaganda, directed by Amy J. Berg. It shamelessly exploits the memories of three little boys, Michael Moore, Christ Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers, whose families still suffer from their loss and from the many subsequent traumas visited upon them by this remarkable case. If you go to the Rotten Tomatoes website and survey the comments of critics large and small around the country, you'll discover a couple of things. One, seemingly every newspaper and website in the country that bothered to review West of Memphis unthinkingly accepted the premise that the West Memphis Three were at the very least unjustly accused and convicted. Many reviewers cluelessly have asserted their innocence, as if the killers were somehow exonerated by multiple convictions and by the plea-bargained guilty pleas that got them out of prison. Two, virtually every newspaper and website in the country that ran a review employed the services of movie reviewers who know nothing about the case except what they've seen at the movies, and many of them can't even get those details right. Over the course of two hours and 30 minutes, West of Memphis supposedly demolishes the prosecution's case against the West Memphis Three, or so bray the critics. It largely does so simply by omitting the prosecution's case. While far too much of the movie is taken up with Terry Hobbs' supposed, supposed lack of an alibi, the movie suggests that the real culprits, with a real lack of alibis, have alibis that prove those teens just couldn't have committed the crime. This is pure bunkum. Eccles flat out admitted on the stand that he and his family shaped their constantly changing and wildly divergent explanations to suit the changing circumstances. A woman who was at the 
that time one of his 12-year-old girlfriends. And this is the one thing I probably would have modified slightly. He only had, the 18-year-old Eccles only had one 12-year-old girlfriend at the time. He was chatting up other 12-year-old girls. I'm sure he would have been happy to also make his girlfriend, but to be fair about it, he only had one 12-year-old girlfriend at the time. Um, but, you know, that one 12-year-old girlfriend is not to be confused with his pregnant 15-year-old girlfriend. Uh, the woman who at that time was his 12-year-old girlfriend says she can provide an Eccles alibi, though she never took the stand in the 1994 trial, probably because her statements to the police offered no alibi. The Miskelly defense's weak attempt at an alibi was demolished in the courtroom. The jury didn't believe his witnesses provided an alibi for a number of good reasons. Jason Baldwin's explanations of his whereabouts was so weak that his attorney didn't even try to present alibi testimony, and uh, Baldwin offers none here. Where was he? What, what was he doing if he wasn't brutally attacking and raping those boys? And yet, we're supposed to take his word that he has an explanation now. Sadly, many of our nation's top film critics already have. Like Paradise Lost, West of Memphis uses the CSI factor to play upon the audience's prejudice that police investigators should be all-knowing with all the forensics details immediately at hand to determine the truth with cool scientific ease. Real work is a lot sloppier than that, but then the West Memphis Three, their celebrity pals, and many of their supporters aren't that familiar with real work. Was the investigation perfect? Of course not. Did the prosecutors work hard to make their case and sometimes misstep? Of course they did. Did the medical examiner get things wrong? Quite possibly, though there's no reason why we shouldn't have to we should have to watch snapping turtles tear flesh off corpses just to make a point that would be more relevant if snapping turtles had tied up the boys, beaten them, and thrown them in the water. And did Terry Hobbs slash open his stepson's face and otherwise mutilate these children? Or was all the gore caused by snapping turtles? One supposes the filmmakers would like to have it both ways as long as they continue to argue for pardons. The linchpin of the case is that Jesse Miskelly gave multiple and fairly consistent confessions before and during and after his arrest. Anyone who, who can count can determine that the length of interrogations has been routinely misstated. And it is misrepresented here. The police did not sweat the boy. He apparently wanted to talk. Unlike the other two in this case, Miskelly still had a smidgen of moral intelligence in May and June of 1993. He knew he had done nothing wrong, and it often brought him to tears. As for Baldwin and Eccles, there's no signs yet that there is a soul in there. Short, not too sweet, and that's it for this time.